You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from Ecclesiastes 1, the verses 1 to 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and then it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it turns to the north and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. The text for this afternoon you will find in Ecclesiastes 3, the verses 1 to 15. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to, to refrain, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to the end. 
I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is, has already been. And what will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe that everything that God does is good? And everything that he has done is good. And everything that he will do in the future is good. Is beautiful, to use the word of verse 11 of our text. Is fitting, is suitable. Do you believe that when God allowed the fall into sin, that that was good? Not the eating of the forbidden fruit, that was a sin. But do you believe that God allowed the fall into sin? In fact, we can even say it a little stronger, as John Calvin would say it, and it's very scriptural, that God actually decreed the fall into sin. He, he determined that that would happen. Do you believe that was good? Do you believe that the death of Abel was good? Not the murder that Cain committed to kill his brother. It was a sin. But do you believe that when God determined that Abel had to die, also in the manner in which he died, that what God determined was good? Do you believe that about things that happen today? Not just the good, what we call good, but also the bad. Nothing happens by chance. Calvin is fond of saying that not a, dra not a drop of rain falls without the express command of God. So do you believe that everything that God does today is also good? And if you do, how does it show in the way that you talk about the things that happen in the world? You get together and you socialize and you visit and you talk about current events, so to speak. How does it show? But whatever God does is good. And how does it show? In how you think and talk about the things that have happened in your own life. Or the things that are happening in your own life. And you get together and you talk about these things. 
How does the perspective of faith enter into the conversation? That whatever has happened or is happening is good. I ask the question because the first part of verse 11 of our text says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. There are other translations. He's made everything appropriate in its time. He's made everything good in its time. Everything is fitting that God does. Everything is suitable. But our translation has, he's made everything beautiful in its time. And what is this, it's time? Well, this, it's time, obviously refers to that beautiful poem in the verses 1 to 8. There is a time for everything and a season for everything that happens. And so there's a time to hate and a time to love. A time to speak and a time to be silent. And whatever happens in these times, says verse 11a, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And how can that be? Well, time doesn't belong to us. All time is God's time. We experience time. We live in time. But all time is God's time. God is the architect of everything that happens in time. God is the chief actor of what's going on in history. That's why history, you can break it up, take the his, you add another s, you get history is his story. It's God's story. And he makes everything beautiful. In its time. Because all time belongs to God. And the preacher expresses this in a beautiful poem. How many opposites were there in the poem? How many times were there? Did you count them? There's 28 times. 14 opposites. The so-called good thing and a so-called bad thing. Twenty-eight times. Four times seven. If you go by two times fourteen, then the seven is still in the fourteen. It's like the preacher is trying to say, in case you don't get this, I'm even going to bring this to expression in the numerical, the number of times that I mention. Four times seven. Seven, the number of perfection. I have made everything beautiful in its time. It's not the first time that the preacher has a poem in his book. He also has a poem in chapter one, which we read together. And he prefaced his poem in chapter 1 by saying, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or, 
meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. It's like holy of holies. You have the holy place and you have the holy of holies, the most holy place. Well, you have things that are vanity and you have vanity of vanities. It's utterly vanity, meaningless. What does he mean? You get a clue when you look at the Hebrew word for vanity, for meaningless. It's hevel. Hevel. And Abel's name in Hebrew was also hevel. So if Adam and Eve would have spoken Hebrew, and probably didn't, but, you know, they would have said, hey, hevel, hevel, come here. It's like saying vanity, vanity, meaningless, come over here. And look at Abel's life. Look at Hevel's life. Killed in the prime of his life. Butchered by his brother Cain. If ever there was a picture of meaningless, seemingly pointlessness, also a briefness and a transience of life, it was Abel. And the preacher picks up on Abel's name, Hevel. And he just scatters it throughout all of his his whole book of 12 chapters. Hevel of Hevelim. All is Hevel. Just like Abel. Meaningless. At least seemingly meaningless. Brief and pointless. And he says no matter how hard you work, you'll never bring a fundamental change in the Hevel the meaningless nature of life. A generation comes and a generation goes. And the earth remains the same. It remains a hevel world. A seemingly pointless world. The sun rises and the sun sets and the sun kind of pants and hastens back to where it's going to rise again and nothing fundamentally changes. The earth continues to groan as a woman in travail. Creation remains subjected to futility, to heaviness, to ableness, to futility. The wind blows to the north and it goes to the south and goes round, round, that's the evil. Go round and round and round all over the place. Nothing changes. Everything remains hevel. And all the waters of the rivers they flow to the sea. The sea never gets full. Pretty well remains the same. Hevel. And now he has a new poem in chapter 3. And his point obviously is this. That in this seemingly brief and transient world and time in which we live, Everything that God does is good, is fitting, is beautiful. Fourteen opposites, as I said, but they're not really contrasts. They're not contrasted opposites. They're all incorporated into God's time. What seem to be opposites to us, time to hate and a time to love, These things are brought together in God's time. 
And as the eternal one, he holds these so-called opposites together. And he infuses each time with his presence, with his grace, and with his peace. Now, I cannot comment in a detailed fashion on all of these 14 opposites, so I'm just going to comment with a little bit of detail on the first five, more or less the first five. So time to be born and a time to die. That's like the parameters in which our time takes place. We're born and then we die. And birth. That's good, I would think. Right? The joy that new life gives to a young couple. Great joy. But also, the child will one day die again. And we consider that to be bad. And we don't call that good. We can only call the birth good. And we have great difficulty in calling the death good. And yet God, He holds both birth and death together. And He calls them both beautiful. But sometimes there is no birth. There are many couples who would like a child. And so the fact that there is not a birth is not good. So it seems. And there is great difficulty in calling a closed womb good. And there are single people who would love to get married and raise a family. And it hasn't happened yet. We have great difficulty in calling them good. And yet the preacher says, Because all time is God's time. And he incorporates everything that happens into his time. And every detail is another little detail of glory in his master plan for our lives. God says, also when the womb remains closed, it's good. And if you're still single, you haven't been able to raise a family, no matter how, how much sorrow that, that may cost you. The preacher says also that, from the perspective of faith, is good. Also, Aloysius' birth was good. It wasn't an accident. God's time it wasn't. God's time, his birth, was good. And should Aloysius die at a young age, and we hope he won't, but should he die at a young age, also his death will be good. No matter how difficult it will be to confess that, at least immediately. The perspective of faith says also that is good. 
And that's why we also sang about that together from Psalm 139. God's not only the master architect, he's also the master weaver who wonderfully knitted Aloysius together in his mother's womb. And we also sang together about all the days ordained for Aloysius were written in God's book before even one of them came to be. They're contrasts for us Life and death. For God, they're not. And because they're not, they're both good. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. God made the seasons. Normally you plant in springtime. And you uproot in the fall. And then the next spring, you do the same thing. And the next fall, you do the same thing. You plant, uproot, plant, uproot. It's like a generation comes and a generation goes and the earth remains the same. All of our planting and all of our uprooting do not make a fundamental change to the fallen nature of this earth. It continues to grow. Continues to be subjected to heaviness, to futility. Yet it's all good. The time to plant and the time to uproot. Even though it doesn't fundamentally change the fallen nature of this world, both times are still good. In God's time. There's even a more of a metaphorical meaning to this planting and uprooting. Nations are planted and nations are uprooted. You had the Soviet Union and all of a sudden the whole thing collapses. It's like it's planted and it's uprooted. Back in the days of the Cold War, they planted all sorts of nuclear arms all over the place, and now they have all sorts of negotiations to reduce them. You plant them and you uproot them. I begin on a sermon, I don't like what I'm making, and I uproot the sermon, and I start on a new one. And you're at Credo Christian High School, and you have to write a paper or an essay, and you don't like what you've been doing, and you tear it up and you start again. You plant and you uproot. You start writing a book and then you stop. There's all sorts of planting and uprooting. And you think, this doesn't make any sense. Is this any good? And God says, yes. The planting is good and the uprooting is good. What you started was good and what you tore up and stopped was good. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Because it's God's time, not our time. And what we can't hold together, God can. Because God is God. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. Think of all the murders. All the murders that have been committed. I mean, we 
We read together about all the water of the rivers, they flow to the sea. And the sea doesn't get full. Well, all the blood of the murders that has been shed flows to the sea, and the sea doesn't even get any redder. Doesn't get any fuller. Awful. Then there's the killing in self-defense. You have police officers who have to kill someone in self-defense. There's a killing that takes place with capital punishment. There's a killing that takes place in war. As I said, not a drop of rain falls without the express command of God. There's not a bullet that flies without the express command of God. He doesn't just passively allow it, as if he couldn't help it. He actually actively determines that the bullet has to fly. We can't hold that together. Who will measure all the tears that has been shed because of someone who's been murdered? And God says, I hold it together. In my master design, it all has meaning. Both are appropriate. The shooting, the murder, and the contrast, the healing. All the healing that takes place in doctors' offices, in hospitals, through medication. They're both good. They're both fitting. It's a time to tear down and a time to build. I mean, we live in a fallen world. Things deteriorate. We tear down houses and we build new houses. We tear down the old Portman Bridge and we build a new Portman Bridge. What good did it do to build that first bridge? We tear down trees and we, we build highways and roads where the trees once were. We tear down and we build up. And you know, it just keeps going over and over again, year after year, century after century. And you know, it doesn't make any fundamental change to the fallen nature of this world. It remains a fallen world, no matter how much tearing down and building up we do. We can't hold it together. And God does. It's all good. Because all time is God's time. And the last one I want to focus on in a little bit of detail with you is the time to embrace and the time to refrain from embracing. I hear an echo of that in what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. He says uh, to the married people in Corinth, he says, uh, do not withhold your bodies from one another. 
Because the husband's body does not belong to him, it belongs to his wife. And the wife's body does not belong to herself, it belongs to her husband. Fulfill your conjugal duties. Except for a season, he says, if there's problems. But not so that you can turn your backs on each other. That's not the point. He says so that you can lift your hearts upwards and devote yourself to prayer. And then come together again. Lest Satan tempt you because of lack of self-control. There's a time for an intimate embrace and there's a time to refrain from an intimate embrace. You refrain sometimes because there is sickness. One of the spouses is sick. The intimacy of the embrace can have to be put on hold because of age or because of a divorce. And we would love to call just the embrace good and the refraining from the embrace not good. And God says, they're both good. Because I have made everything beautiful in its time. The embrace and the refraining from the embrace. They're all infused with my presence, with my grace, and with my peace. And the preacher continues. It's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time for a prophet and a time for a loss, a time to search and a time to abandon your searching, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There's nothing that happens by chance. Everything is good and beautiful in God's time. God infuses it all with his love, with his presence, and with his grace. And that is incredibly hard to believe. Not only because we like to live by sight, and we find it so difficult to live by faith, that in itself already makes this difficult. But it becomes even more difficult because God has put eternity into our hearts. Think of eternity. God living in eternity. There is no past for God. There is no future for God. God lives in the eternal present. He sees everything in one look just like that. And God has put eternity into our hearts. You see that already in the fact that we are able to reflect upon the past 
and we're able to meditate on the future. And in a certain sense, we can hold more things together than just the present. We can get a little bit of the, see a little bit of the big picture. But just a little bit of the big picture. Eternity having been put in our hearts enables us to do that. But we can't see the whole big picture. We can't see as God sees. And we desire to see as God sees. We want to know the meaning of what happens. We want to know why it is good and how it is good. And God says, I'm not going to let you do that. You're going to remain human. And I'm not going to let you do that because I want you to live by faith. I want you to fear me, to revere me. I want you to realize that you're living on holy ground all the time and in holy time. I want to keep you conscious of the fact that all time is my time. I want to keep you conscious of the fact that history is his story, my story. I want you to look further than your nose is long. I want you to live by faith and not by sight. And that's why I won't let you see what I see. I'll just let you see a little bit of the big picture. Incredibly hard for us to believe that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Precisely Because God has put eternity into our hearts. But do we believe this, brothers and sisters? Do we really believe that everything that God does is good? I'm back to the beginning of my sermon. Do we? That everything that God does is good is beautiful. The good and the bad are not contrasts, but are incorporated, brought together, and held together in God's time. How does it show? In the difficulties he went through in the past. How is it showing in the difficulties you are going through in the the present time. He's made everything beautiful in his time. How does it show when God strikes a loved one with terminal cancer? He's made everything beautiful in his time. Also this, terminal cancer. The accident that happened in the past. The financial loss I suffered in the past. Or am suffering in the present. How does it show? How does it show in my trust in God? In my feeding on God's faithfulness. 
in my committing my way to the Lord, in my resting in God, like a little baby rests at its mother's breast, I rest in God and in God's faithfulness. How does it show? And how does it show in our conversations? We get together. We have our coffee. And we talk. How does the perspective of faith, brothers and sisters, infuse the conversation with meaning and with God's approach to life? At bottom, the question is, how well developed is our fear of the Lord? Our consciously being aware that every second and minute and hour of our lives, we are standing on holy ground. See, holy ground wasn't just by the burning bush. All ground that we stand on is holy because God is present everywhere. How well developed is our fear of the Lord? Also with regard to the time in which we live. All time is God's time. And now I could say amen and send you home. And then you go home and you say, well, I just have to live more by faith and not by sight. I can't send you home yet. Because I have to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to point you to your only comfort. I don't want to throw you back on your own selves, on your own resources. So that you leave the sanctuary and say, I just got to try better. I got to try harder to be a good Christian. I want to remind you that you're not your own. You belong to Jesus. You're His. The Lord Jesus Christ, for whom there also was a time to be born. It was no accident when He was born. He was born in the fullness of time. Exactly when God wanted Him to be born. There was a time for Jesus to die. Precise time. My hour has not yet come, but when the hour has come, Jesus will die. Time to be born and a time to die. A time for Jesus to weep at Lazarus' grave. His good friend Lazarus had died. The Son of God in human flesh. He weeps at Lazarus' grave. And a time to laugh when he partied together with sinners and tax collectors. Meaningless? Contrasts? Not at all. Also for Jesus, it was God's time, his Father's time, and they were held together by his heavenly Father. It's a time for Jesus to speak. He spoke a lot but a time for Jesus to be silent as well. 
He stood before his accusers and he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he didn't speak. He didn't open his mouth. Time for Jesus to love. Time for Jesus to hate. I hate what you're doing. Time for Jesus to wage war. And a time for Jesus to make peace. And you know, Jesus, he, he always lived in fear of the Lord. He always realized that he was standing on holy ground. His father's ground. This is my father's world. And he knew that. And he always knew that he was living in his father's time. It wasn't his own time. It was his father's time. And so Jesus always entrusted himself to his heavenly father. He fed on his father's faithfulness. Just like you fed on the bread, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning when you celebrated the Lord's Supper. Jesus fed on His Father's faithfulness. He committed His way to His Heavenly Father. He rested in the bosom of His Heavenly Father like a little baby. And now Jesus knows for sure He doesn't have to live by faith anymore. He lives by sight. Look at Jesus now. He's in heaven with a glorified body. He's ruling. Now he knows for sure what God's master plan for his life was all about. He sees this master plan. And now he can look back and he can say, yes, Everything was good. All the opposition that I endured during my ministry, my painful death on Calvary's cross, all of that was good and beautiful. It was all another detail in the Father's design of glory for my life. The Lord Jesus Christ, He calls me and He calls you. He says... Look at me. Look at me. You find it so hard to believe? Especially because I put eternity into your hearts? And you find it so hard to believe because you can't get beyond the tears. You can't get beyond the disappointment. I understand that. But look beyond. Look at me. A glorified Resurrected, ascended Jesus. The first fruits of God's new creation. I'm proof. I'm proof that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Feed on me like you did this morning with the bread and with the wine. And you will increasingly be able to to believe God has made everything beautiful in its time. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web 
at www.langleycanrc.org.